If we take as core principles that we want to keep people enrolled in coverage, we want to improve health outcomes, we want to be responsible stewards of public dollars, and we want to advance health equity, there is no other conclusion than to say we need to be doing more around health-related social needs. If we are going to do right on our promise of meeting the needs of medical assistance for Medicaid-eligible individuals, this is the right direction to be going. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. On this podcast, we talk about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. Only 20% of overall health is determined by medical services. We are here to talk about the other 80%, housing, food, social connections, and how to move rapidly and equitably towards whole person health in this country. Over 92 million people are covered by Medicaid or CHIP. These programs play a vital role in caring for many Americans, especially communities of color who are facing issues with access, quality of care, and poor health outcomes. As we heard from Mandy and from Brad, state Medicaid programs are moving upstream to offer social services, such as housing, social support, and food, in addition to medical care. Our guest today is Dr. Aditi Malik. Chief Medical Officer for Medicaid and CHIP at CMS. Aditi is a physician, strategic policy advisor, and former management consultant. Before joining CMS, she was director of the COVID-19 Response Command Center at the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. We talked about how Medicaid's shift upstream improves equity where to draw the line for what social services Medicaid should cover, and the challenges of designing, implementing, and studying new programs all at the same time. And so it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Aditi Malik to The Other 80. What's really important for listeners to know about you? The highlights. I'm the child of Indian immigrants. In the defining moment of my childhood, I was 11. My dad was in his early 40s and he was diagnosed with stage three esophageal cancer. My parents uh, were small business owners and this is pre-ACA, so our family didn't have health insurance. It was more cost effective my, for my dad, who was a British citizen, to get on an airplane, go to London and be seen by an NHS doctor than to seek care in the United States. When ultimately he got his diagnosis, which was actually done by the NHS, um, he came back here. And because our family didn't have insurance, my mom, who had was running a small business and raising two daughters, had to scrape together money for chemotherapy infusions in cash on a weekly basis. Um, my father ultimately passed away nine months later. And that's why I'm a doctor. That's why I work in healthcare. That's why I work in health policy um, in particular, because no family in, in the wealthiest country in the world, no family should ever have to go through that. And when I was 12, I was 12 when this happened. When I was 12, I thought, well, if I'm a doctor, I could, I can't change what happened to my own family, but maybe I could change it for someone else's family. And the more I walked down that path, I'm not from a, a family of doctors, despite the stereotype. Um, then the more I walked down the path, the more I realized that it was really health systems and health systems administration 
where I wanted to be. And so um, I've had the tremendous privilege in my career so far of also being a clinician um, and being able to be with people and their families in their most vulnerable, horrible moments, frankly, um, which is a tremendous, tremendous privilege alongside being able to do what I do from a federal perspective for a program that serves 90 million people. And so to answer your question, Claudia, of what to know about me, I would say um, this is it's deeply personal. It's not um, uh, it's not just a job and it's not lost on me what a privilege it is to do what I do. I think many people in healthcare have not your story exactly, but versions of your story where they've experienced something that feels really broken and wrong and um, have set about the long process of trying to work to fix that. So I really, I'm grateful for your service. I know um, there are sacrifices that go with being a public servant. There are also privileges, as you say, but there are also things that, that can make that challenging. And I'm so glad that you picked that path. So I think we talked a little bit yesterday about this three-part purpose that you've talked about for the Center for Medicaid and CHIP Services, which was where you um, serve. And it's a really compelling three-part purpose of innovating around whole person health, whole person care, uh, improving health equity, and uh, improving access and coverage and and assuring access and coverage. And I'd love it if we could use that framework as a way to sort of structure the conversation today and maybe start with equity. Often I've found that it goes last, but to me really that uh, purpose is in in some ways the driver of the other things because we have such a, a hole that we're in in the U.S. So I thought it would be great to hear from you in your view, in your role where you sit, what do you feel is at stake here? Like, what are some of the issues that are most urgent to address? And secondly, what is the role of CMS in helping us create health and healthcare and a system that's more equitable? I think about this a lot. Let me just start start there. What's at stake for CMS with respect to equity? So CMCS, or the Center for Medicaid and CHIP Services in particular, um, the Medicaid and CHIP programs now collectively cover over 91 million people. Um, And those are numbers that have increased dramatically, as your listeners probably know, because of continuous enrollment provisions enacted at the start of the pandemic. Medicaid and CHIP also cover over 40% of births, over 40% of children, more than half of Medicaid beneficiaries, about 60-ish percent, as of 2020 MACPAC analysis, identify as Black, Hispanic, Asian American, or another non-white race or entity. So disproportionately people of color. And evidence shows that even after controlling for a range of socioeconomic factors, racial and ethnic disparities in access, quality of care, experience of care, and health outcomes persist across the healthcare system. So as the single largest payer, sort of federal state shared payer in the country, we have to be paying attention to that. We think about health equity and the concrete actions we have to be taking across three buckets, I would say. The first is measuring disparities to really understand the baseline and track performance. 
two is supporting innovation and adoption of equity-focused practices. That's where a lot of the um, coverage expansion work, health-related social needs services, I think fit into that bucket. And then the third is orienting payment and care delivery systems to really focus on gaps and closing gaps. On that first bucket of measuring disparities, it's really, we don't know what we don't know, and there's no quality improvement without equity, right? There's no equity without quality, and there's no quality without equity. And so um, we have a very concerted effort underway to understand as best we can complete data collection, quality, completeness around key demographic factors like race, ethnicity, geography, disability status, etc. And we're really committed to doing that in as consistent, standardized, transparent a way as possible, because that's the only way we're going to know where those disparities are. On that second bucket of supporting innovation and adoption of equity-focused interventions, a whole range of work underway around increasing access increasing access to coverage and services, right? You can't access services if you don't have the baseline coverage. There is ample, ample evidence that I'm sure your listeners are also aware of, of Medicaid expansion as a driver of improved access, quality, economic measures, right? So I would put Medicaid expansion, Medicaid expansion is an equity-focused intervention. Um, so too is 12-month postpartum coverage expansion, so too is the opportunity through 1115 demonstration authority to provide pre-release services to justice-involved individuals in carceral settings, all of the work around behavioral health and addressing the behavioral health crisis in this country and increasing access to behavioral health services. I would also put an equity-focused intervention category. Um, and then uh, health-related social needs. I think you've seen... Um, that as a major focus in this administration. And I will say Medicaid has for some time focused on health-related social needs services, um, but building off the momentum from the December 2021 approval of a range of health-related social needs in California through 1115 Authority and Managed Care Authority um, marked really the first time that those targeted health-related social needs services or broadly extended beyond individuals with disabilities or institutional long-term care settings. Um, and so a good deal of work underway, as I, as I think you know, around addressing health-related social needs services here as well. Um, and so I'll, I'll, in sum, say because of CMS's position and CMCS in particular, as, the, as I said, single largest payer, and CMS collectively touches the lives of over 150 million people in this country, to not pay attention to health equity would be a tremendous blind spot. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and I think that's a nice segue to talk about the second major kind of pillar of purpose, which is innovating around whole person care. But before digging into some of the specifics of that, the concrete policy avenues and stuff like that, I'd just love to give you a chance to talk about what's at stake for CMCS and Medicaid in covering some of those services. What's what, what's the purpose here? Where are we trying to go? Yeah, I mean, foundationally, we cannot keep 
people covered. We cannot improve long-term health outcomes. We cannot avert unnecessary medical spending. We cannot advance health equity without doing more to address health-related social needs. There is a huge body of evidence that points to the fact that clinical care and clinical interventions are a narrow slice of what dictates an individual's health outcomes and that the context in which they live, work, worship has a much bigger impact on their health, their longevity, their mortality. And so if we take as core principles that we want to keep people enrolled in coverage, we want to improve health outcomes, we want to be responsible stewards of public dollars, and we want to advance health equity, there is no other conclusion than to say we need to be doing more around health-related social needs. I think it's also fair to say, and I say this as a clinician, that the current healthcare system really does not adequately focus on health-related social needs. That leads to things like lapses in coverage, lapses in access to care, higher downstream medical costs. Right? I will tell you in my experience as a hospitalist how many times I have seen people who are marginally housed or food nutritionally insecure coming in and out of the emergency department for what is ultimately the same medical problem rooted in an upstream unmet social need. Um, perpetuation of those health inequities, particularly for children, high-risk adults, often individuals with severe mental illness or individuals in historically marginalized communities. And so this is a real opportunity. It's a real opportunity to go upstream in a way that is medically appropriate, cost-effective, and say, if we are going to do right on our promise of meeting the needs of medical assistance for Medicaid-eligible individuals, this is the right direction to be going. And give us a sense of what some of those services might be that could be covered by Medicaid programs. What do those look like? Yeah. So for example, let's say an individual is housing insecure, right? Doesn't have a stable roof over their head. This would be things like housing navigation services, assistance with being connected to a housing services agency, navigation services, uh, one-time transition costs, tenancy sustaining services, um, eviction prevention services, and depending on the authority, can actually include things like short-term post-transitional housing. Um, on the nutrition side, it could be things like case management services for access to food and nutrition. So that would be like assistance enrolling in WIC or SNAP. Um, where appropriate and for the right populations, medically tailored meals or nutritionally appropriate prescriptions like fruit and vegetable boxes, protein boxes, home delivered meals, et cetera. As a Medicaid policy geek myself, I know there's a great uh, variety of ways in which states can innovate their programs. And I'd love to focus on two pathways that states can take, and please correct anything I get wrong. But one pathway is 1115 uh, demonstration authority, which allows a state to basically um, remove certain statutory bar uh, rules around the program and innovate um, as long as it's as it's budget neutral, right? So that's one pathway. A second pathway is um, you have put out guidance that identified some of these in lieu of services that can be covered without a special demonstration. And you have guidance that came out recently on that. Um, 
So maybe just focusing on on those two pathways, can you just describe what each of them is, what they mean, how how what can be covered is is different in the two pathways um, for our audience? And I would say our audience is like really interested in policy, but probably not uh, completely in the weeds on on some of these questions. Sure. Um, so let me start with Section 1115s. This is a portion of the Medicaid statute. It gives states a fair amount of flexibility in testing approaches that, uh, that promote the objectives of Medicaid. And what uh, Section 1115 demonstrations do is they provide waivers from statutory and regulatory requirements that would not otherwise be available under the Medicaid state plan. So states can receive federal match for activities that are not otherwise considered traditional medical assistance under the state plan. And there's two different types of authority that come under Section 1115. There's waiver authority um, that allows, as I said, states to waive certain sections of Medicaid statute. And then that sits alongside expenditure authority. And that uh, that's what allows states to get federal match for activities that they wouldn't be able to get federal match for under a different context. Um, practically speaking, the way that works is a state submits a demonstration application to CMS. The state has to show that the demonstration is budget neutral over the demonstration period. And typically a demonstration approval is for five years um, and then often gets renewed on a roughly every five-year cycle. Um, they tend to have a pretty high bar to clear, um, and they come with robust monitoring and evaluation requirements. Um, and CMS, and it's it's a negotiation, really. States and CMS enter, enter into a negotiation around um, the terms of that demonstration and exactly how it'll be monitored. That's distinct from managed care in lieu of services. So the way that works is for states that have um, a managed care whose Medicaid systems are delivered through managed care, um, states submit a managed care waiver, a 1915B managed care waiver, if you're following along, um, to CMS. And the key features of that are um, states can require all Medicaid beneficiaries to get services from their health plans, States can operate managed care in only certain areas, or they can limit the number of health plans, or um, they can allow health plans to provide different benefits. Um, but through in lieu of services, the states states have to show that the waiver is cost effective over the waiver period. Those waiver approvals are generally two years at a time. Um, and through the in lieu of services authority in particular, um, that authority can be used at the option of a managed care plan and at the option of the enrollee as an immediate or a long-term substitute for a state plan covered service. Um, and the goal here is where the in lieu of service would be expected to reduce or prevent the future need to use another state plan service. So this will come alive if I give you an example. So for example, through in lieu of services, the theory of the case or the thesis is that by offering medically appropriate cost-effective in lieu of services, like medically tailored meals, you improve health outcomes and facilitate greater access to living in the community that then prevents somebody from needing to be institutionalized in a facility. And you therefore are saving on the state plan covered service, which would have been institutionalization. 
So in lieu of services are, um, California was the first to do this, and there's increasing interest from a number of states to use in lieu of services through their managed care plans to address certain enrollees' health-related social needs. Um, and those in lieu of services by statute have to be, they have to advance the objectives of Medicaid, they have to be cost-effective, medically appropriate, and they're, they're also subject to monitoring evaluation and retrospective evaluation. Great. One of the things you've indirectly touched on that many other folks on the show have also talked about is a fairly hard question, I would say, to answer, which is where is the line? So as we start going down this pathway of starting to address more health-related social needs under Medicaid, what is Medicaid's role versus the roles of other programs or even things that are out of scope? And so I'm curious how you think about that line. Yeah, I mean, I will say... All of the services that we have put forward have an evidence base to them. So I think there we were very intentional about the about the guardrails here for this exact point. The set of services that we have put forward in the HRSN framework for 1115s, for example, are based on some sort of evidence around improvement in downstream health outcomes, cost, and or equity. We similarly, for states that have this expenditure authority, have made certain that all of these interventions are clinically appropriate for the population that they are being applied to. Another really important guardrail on the um, on the policy side for 1115 is these expenditures are capped. Um, there's a cap within the demonstration on what, what the allowable spend on health-related social needs services can be. The coverage of these services is very intentionally meant to supplement and not supplant the work of any other non-Medicaid agency, which is to say if there is, um, it, it is never going to be the role of the Medicaid program to pay for long-term women board. That is a hundred percent categorically out of question, right? And so, but it is, however, the role of Medicaid to be a wraparound or a short-term time-limited bridge for high-risk individuals. What are some of the pieces of data or evidence you're most excited to get from the evaluations that are laid out as part of the 1115s? Like what are some of the early indicators of success you're curious about and want to learn from? I think even just fundamentally knowing who is getting access to these services by a variety of um, demographic stratifications, I think will be incredibly important to know. And to understand what are the clinical and social risk factors that those individuals face, um, I am personally very excited to see the screening data, right? So there are a number of... um, instruments, survey instruments in the field to screen for housing instability, nutrition insecurity. I can tell you anecdotally, again, from my experience as a clinician, that there are a sizable percentage of people insured by Medicaid and CHIP who face at least one unmet health-related social need. Um, And I am eager to see the, the data that underlies that beyond my own anecdotal experience. So moving on to implementation, what kinds of things are you hearing from the field about 
the either expected or unexpected challenges as we're actually implementing these new initiatives? Yeah, a couple of things. I think on on the alignment and coordination, um, we hear a lot about workforce capacity issues. We hear a lot about the challenge of learning and implementing at the same time, right? There is, um, this is, this is novel policy and novel implementation and you hit go at the same time. And there's, as you said, I think bound to be, um, bound to be a steep learning curve in that environment. Um, we hear quite a bit about data sharing, um, data sharing between the healthcare setting, the social services setting and community-based organization setting and how to do that in a way that is, um, respectful of each sector or each organization's core competencies and in a way that centers the enrollee, right? And center, like centers the individual um, because it requires all of, you know, all of the case managers need to talk to each other and not just to the enrollee as an example, right? Because otherwise you need um, a case manager for the case managers, Our last guest was Andy Slavitt, who was primarily talking about uh, the entrepreneurial space, the space of startups and companies, his role as an investor. Um, Do you have any messages or guidance for some of those current companies or founders that are saying, I know it's hard, but I really want to work in this space because it's so impactful. What would you say to them? Uh, Good question. A couple thoughts. One, um, huge market opportunity, 91 million people is is um, not to be scoffed at. Um, two, from a user-centered design approach, please, please, I, um, I implore you to think about designing solutions that will work for an, a, a Medicaid and CHIP population. The reason I say that is because I think a lot of innovative ideas, when they are actually coded and they get a slick UI and are sort of brought to market are really um, can be out of reach, out of touch, out of sync with um, the realities of what a Medicaid member might need. And so um, as you are as you are identifying problems and constructing your solutions, please think about who you are designing for, because I think it really, really matters. Um, the other is to say, I think there is a tremendous role for technology here and tech enablement here um, when done thoughtfully. I think um, you you cannot, I think a pure technology business in this space that doesn't have um, humans or service layered on top of it will not work, frankly, because so much of the implementation success around health-related social needs will be predicated on being able to bring together people from a community setting and trusted voices who are from from the community um, as opposed to building and throwing something at the community. Um, And so I I am in the same breath saying, I think there is tremendous opportunity for technology enablement while also saying it cannot be purely technology because there really has to be an investment in the people and in listening to the needs of the people and the communities and organizations that serve 
communities and individuals in need. That's an interesting point, especially because I think the instinct I've noticed in some some entrepreneurs, especially those that are new to healthcare, is this is all broken. I'm going to do an end run. And I think what you're saying is you have to actually integrate with what's happening with this program, both the people that will be ultimately served by it, but also the organizations that will need to be the partners. Yes. All right, let's move to the third. So I think there's obviously so much that could be said about coverage and access. And this is an area where we've seen huge advances since the ACA went into effect, big increases in coverage, um, both the benefits and the coverage um, marketplace, which is a completely new concept that didn't exist before. I think there has at the same time been a lot of recent concern about the upcoming redeterminations that will happen because the public health emergency is ending. Uh, People benefited from continuous Medicaid coverage, meaning they weren't up for rechecking during the, the public health emergency, and that will be ending as of April 1st. And so that means that for those who are up for their chance to get redetermined, that will be happening again, as it was before the pandemic. Um, I think what's worrying people is that there are estimated to be 15 million people that might lose coverage, and about half of those might be people that actually still qualify for Medicaid. And so I know um, you shared this is an all-hands-on-deck effort. At the same time, I'm hearing a lot of worrying concern, which I think is is justified. If you could just describe some of the things that are going on to be sure that this doesn't, that we mitigate the effects of this thing that will be happening and also any asks you want to make of listeners around in this space. Yeah. um, Thank you for that. Our, our teams are heavily, heavily engaged in essentially daily conversations with states and territories across the country as they gear up to do redeterminations for essentially the first time in three years. Um, so the, the first thing I want to note is a tremendous amount of effort. We at HHS, CMS are really dedicated to making sure that people stay connected to coverage, whether that's remaining on Medicaid or CHIP, if they are still eligible, or transitioning to another coverage option like marketplace coverage. Um, we really want to make sure that people enrolled in Medicaid and CHIP are aware that this is coming and to make sure that their state agency has their updated contact information so they can be reached when their states when their state begins reaching out um, to beneficiaries. So first thing I want to plug is there's an unwinding webpage um, that is medicaid.gov backslash unwinding. That is really the centralized location where states and really any stakeholders can learn about unwinding and access resources, including that timeline um, that I mentioned. I think in terms of a call to action to folks that may be listening right now, um, please start thinking about what you and your organization can do in the coming weeks and months to really commit to this. We, I would encourage anyone listening to think about how their organization can be helpful and how to connect with other organizations in your state, in your region, in your local community to reach people with Medicaid and CHIP. And that includes, in particular, how to amplify strategies and outreach to minority and underserved communities who the research has shown will be dispropor- are likely to be disproportionately impacted by the loss of Medicaid and CHIP coverage. Great. And I just want to reiterate, I mean, recent studies show up to two-thirds of 
uh, Medicaid uh, enrollees are not aware of this, um, according to a recent RWJ study. So this is really urgent and we really need everyone to roll up their sleeves and try to figure out what is your role in helping um, stem these losses that will, you know, we just want to make sure that anyone who's eligible continues to be enrolled. Okay, finally, we always wrap up with two questions for guests. And the first is, as you've navigated your career, what is a leadership lesson you've learned the hard way? Ooh, that's a good question. I would say learning how to fight the imposter syndrome. Hmm. So I think for a, a long time, I had convinced myself that I was too young or too inexperienced or too this or too that, or, oh, like, like why should I speak up about that? Somebody else will say something. Um, and I have um, learned the hard way, but in a good way, um, that if I'm in this chair, then I got to do it, right? Part of the responsibility of sitting in this chair means you speak up. It means you say the uncomfortable things. Um, even if it feels like, is that my role? Is that my place? Because you know what? I'm sitting here, so it's my place. I, I know women aren't the only ones who have this, but I think for us who've been, we all know how we've been socialized and it can be super uncomfortable. I love that framing though, because I think for some of us, what a lot, what helps us get over that hump is remembering that we're doing it for a big purpose that we care deeply about. It's been a really wonderful conversation and I'm so struck by your passion, but also your the depth of your understanding and sort of knowledge about how to use policy to create good in the world. And uh, thanks, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. big thank you to Dr. Malik for joining me in conversation. She echoed many of the things we've heard on this podcast before, including that there's a lot of room for Medicaid entrepreneurs to make a big difference. Aditi urges innovators to design with enrollees and community partners in mind. Pure technology plays won't work here. We need technology with a human touch. As we celebrate North Carolina's decision to expand Medicaid, our attention turns to the 10 remaining states that have not yet done so. Dr. Malik reminds us that voting to expand Medicaid is a vote for health equity, access, and quality for all Americans. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for links to CMS's policy guidance uncovering health-related social needs and MacPAC's Medicaid and CHIP data book. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams. <music>